Thanks for listening to the Granary Church Podcast. For more information, head to granary.org.au or follow us on social media at The Granary Church. Thank you, worship team. Thank you for leading us. Thank you for sacrificing your Sunday morning to lead us in worship. It's such a privilege to be here, just not only to be bringing the word, but just even to be in church. And I'm really excited about this uh, foundations because I am preaching to myself as much as to anyone here because uh, I really needed to go back to the foundations. So thank you, Sue and the team for that wisdom and that vision and being faithful to what God has put on your heart for us for this year. Because in the chaos of everything and in the storms around us, looking at those things, no matter how strong our foundations are, can threaten to overwhelm us and drag us down and push us around a bit. Uh, So it's really, really timely, I believe, to be looking at the rock that we're standing on, that we're planted in, uh, and build that back up and invite him to build it up for us. Well, tomorrow is the the 17th of January, and that has uh, come known in some circles as Quitter's Day. Has anybody heard of Quitter's Day? Well, Strava, the exercise app, anybody heard of Strava or use it to track your exercise? Yeah. Well, they've been studying this phenomenon for the last couple of years, since about 2019, and they've predicted that this year, on the 17th of January, the most people will quit their New Year's resolutions. That's the date. Quitter's Day, they've dubbed it. There's been a Quitter's Day every year for the last couple of years where the majority of us will abandon our New Year's resolutions. Apparently, by February, 80% of us will have completely abandoned our New Year's resolutions. Now, this is not to bring any sense of shame to any of you who have made and maybe even already abandoned some New Year's resolutions. I personally have abandoned every single New Year's resolution I have ever made in previous years. Anybody been able to perfectly keep a New Year's resolution from start to finish in a year? No one. Okay, we're in good company then. I didn't even make New Year's resolutions this year, if I'm being perfectly honest, and partly that's because I moved house on the 23rd of December. So not only did I not notice that it was New Year's, I also made my resolutions a week early because there's just something about a fresh start, a clean slate that I can't resist when it comes to having the opportunity to begin again, start fresh, recreate something of my habits or my life or myself. There's just something that is just so appealing and enticing. I just want to make it all new. I've never actually moved house really before. If you believe it, it was actually my first time doing a big house move and I didn't realise moving house is not the perfect time to create new resolutions and recreate yourself because it is the most chaotic time in your life. You'll never be surrounded by more chaos, I think. Well, at least for me, with two kids and moving at Christmas, it was not the right time. But I just can't, I just look for opportunities all the time. There's nothing magic about January 1st, but it's such a good opportunity, isn't it? To just say, this is the end of this thing and the start of something new I want to do. And we're just so driven sometimes by goals. We're very goal-oriented. We also really strongly desire and sometimes even crave 
to recreate ourselves. There's whole industries out there in the world geared around this, geared to help us achieve that. And it's no wonder that we crave it because when we come to Jesus, this is exactly what we get. It's something we're longing for. 2 Corinthians 5 says that anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. But this creation isn't something that we do ourselves. It's given to us by God. The next verse says, all this is from God. And in Ephesians, Paul puts it this way, put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. But again, this is from God. The new self is created for us. We're not creating ourselves or recreating ourselves. All we have to do is put it on. It can be problematic for us though. We're so goal-oriented but often being driven by goals and wanting to achieve things can get in the way for us. It can let us down because when we fail to achieve these goals, which we inevitably do, it can bring about a sense of shame, a sense of failure, a disappointment in ourselves. We get into difficulty in particular when we replace our purpose the reason why we're here, why we're alive, with goals. And when we expect our goals and the achievement of our goals to help us feel whole and content and happy, we can get into a fair bit of trouble. Because goals are really fairly immaterial and they're very, very much outside of our control. I might have a goal to become a published author, And even if I manage to finish a book, which is a huge undertaking in and of itself, it doesn't guarantee that it's going to be published. And even if somebody picks it up to publish it or I self-publish it, it doesn't guarantee that anyone's going to read it. And even if somebody reads it, that doesn't guarantee that it's actually going, they're going to like it or that they're going to have gained the revelatory light that I tried to imbue in my work so perfectly after hours and hours of striving. It doesn't guarantee anything. But... My failure to publish books or even write books at this point in my life, if we're being really honest, does not diminish from my purpose when my purpose is to bring light, to put flesh on the revelation of God's love. Because my goals to become a published author or to write a whole book is born out of my purpose and my purpose sustains my striving, my working, all that hard energy I put into working towards my goals. Most importantly, though, my awareness of my purpose comes from God because I am, after all, as Ephesians says, his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. And I can live out my purpose day in, day out. You write a book, that's a big undertaking, but I can bring to light God's revelation of our love. I can live out that purpose in little moments with my kids in text messages to friends, in day-to-day interactions. It doesn't have to be the big stuff. I can be doing it all the time. And so when you live out of your purpose, it keeps fueling you towards those larger goals and sustaining your energy towards them. I find this distinction between goal and purpose really useful on a personal scale. But today, even more useful for us is to study the Word of God and examine what was driving Paul in Philippians. So if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn it on, boot it up. We're going to be reading from Philippians 3, from verse 7. 
But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Sometimes I really do wish it was a bit more straightforward studying the Bible and understanding things because when I first read this a little while ago, it was I was reading it going, well, what is the goal? Oh, to win the prize. Oh, gee, thanks. That's so helpful. Well, what is the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Jesus? I couldn't make a lot of sense of that, but a lot of the commentary seem to agree that it's about our calling. The prize is what we've been called to. It's the calling on our life. This is the prize. The prize is what we've been called to. I want to propose something here before we unpack this passage together. And it might be a bit radical, so hear me out. The chief purpose of the Christian life, the end game, if you will, is all about knowing Jesus, knowing God, fellowship with Christ, sharing and partaking in his sufferings, which he endured on behalf of us, getting to know him, striving to be closer to him, abiding in him. That's what it's all about. Okay, I say that and you're sitting there saying, that's not that radical. Who do you think it is you're talking to this morning? But there's a distinction, a fine distinction I want to draw here between becoming more like Jesus and getting to know Jesus. And our main goal isn't to resemble him. Our main purpose in life is not to look more like him, It's to be in relationship with him and to be closer to him because we will fail at the goal of looking like him. We will fail at coming closer, drawing more of our being into alignment with his, but we will not fail at getting nearer to Jesus. Relationship, we can always be seeking to know him more and succeed at that, but we cannot bring ourselves into a place of being more like Jesus on our own steam. We cannot succeed at that. I grew up in the church thinking that my main mission in life was to become more like Jesus. I thought nobody preached it at me directly. It's not like it was said from the front, by the way, to the end of everything else, you just need to be like Jesus. That's all it is about. Don't do anything else in life. That's it. Nobody said that. But I internalised a lot. And as a kid, I really grew up because I'm also a perfectionist, recovering perfectionist. I thought it was all about being like Jesus. It isn't about changing. Our main aim isn't about sinning less. Our main aim, our purpose in life isn't being and doing righteous acts. 
but it's about knowing Jesus Christ as our Lord and Saviour, the one who suffered even though he is God, the one who came and took on our flesh, our fragile form, even though he's God, the one who for all eternity will bear the scars of what we did to him. Having our main focus being on knowing Jesus doesn't mean that we are not becoming like him. We're not trading one for the other. It's just that knowledge comes first. And because it is fellowship with Jesus that is the vessel for us changing and becoming like him, that's why I'm saying our purpose is to know Christ. And then we can make as a goal becoming like Jesus. We're going to fail at the goal. And the more we fail at things, the harder it is for us to get up and keep trying. We have finite resources. We run out of steam. We get depressed easily. We internalize feelings of failure and then start saying about ourselves, I am a failure. But if our main purpose is coming closer to Jesus to know him more, then that fuels our drive, our desire to live up to the standards we see, the way that he loved others, the way that he listened perfectly to the Father and was never out of step with the Father. All those things are goals. But our purpose is communion with him, fellowship, abiding. Now some might say in response to this, you realise though we are instructed to be perfect. Jesus said it, Sermon on the Mount. Be perfect just as our heavenly Father is perfect. And the Bible is very clear in other parts about instructions on Christian living and the standards are very, very, very high. They're aiming at perfection. Ephesians 4.1 says that we're to live a life worthy of the calling, that very same calling which is the prize, the goal, the thing that Paul is working towards. We have to make sure we're living a life worthy of it. That means, surely, doesn't it, that we're meant to be aiming at, working towards this perfection. Even Paul says here in verse 12, not that I have already obtained all this or have been already made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Jesus Christ took hold of me. I press on to take hold of that calling that he has prepared for me, even though he's not perfect yet. Well, I just want to dig a little deeper into this idea of perfect here in this verse 12, the same root word that Jesus uses in Matthew to say be perfect because the Greek idea of perfect is a little different to ours. The root word here that's translated as perfect is actually complete, whole and was often used by Greek philosophers in regards to something being in its intended function. So I just want to say that again. The idea of perfect here is something that is complete, something that is whole, and something that's doing what it was made to do. It's operating out of its intended function. We've gone and added a moral component to perfection. In English, our translators of the Bible got to the word perfect here from that Greek word because they deemed perfect to be synonymous with completion. Let's think about that for a moment, though. Sure, something that's incomplete can't be perfect, right? Because it's not finished yet. There's no way it can be perfect while it's unfinished. And that's why we have that powerful, powerful line from Jesus saying, it is finished, right? It's, you can't undo that. It's, it's, it's done. It's complete. But just because something is complete does not necessarily make it perfect, or at least to our very modern concept 
of the idea of perfection. Because I want to ask you to think back to the last assignment you ever wrote. That might be, for me, it's a long time ago. Or the last report you handed in at work. The last paint job you ever did on a house or someone else's house. The last creative thing you, you did. You maybe played a song or maybe you sewed a beautiful garment or maybe you've sat down to write something. And I just want to ask you, when you got to a point of saying, this is finished, this is, I can hand this into my boss now, I can submit this for grading, I can just pack up my tools and say it's done, was it because it was perfect or was it because you could say to yourself, in all honesty, it's good enough, it's close enough, it's of a high enough standard that I can now deem this as complete or time's run out and it's done. Usually one or the other for us when we say something is complete. But how can you, can any of you turn back around and say, yeah, I have written the perfect essay. It's in my file. I've got it at home. It's perfect. How many of you can say, that meeting I just had with my boss, that was perfect. Anybody ever been in a perfect meeting that went perfectly? It might have been finished, might have been deemed complete. We've done all the things we needed to do, but was it perfect? Or for parents, how many of you have completed a day of parenting with your kids and been able to say, that was perfect? Anyone? I'm getting chuckles. Yeah, it doesn't happen. So often we complete things and we cannot say in good conscience, in good faith that that was perfect or that I did that perfectly or that it went perfectly. Very few times in our world, in our life, can we do that? Because our idea of perfection has shifted away from this definition of being complete and whole and just doing what it was intended to do. We've added to it this idea of flawlessness. Something isn't perfect to us unless it is also completely and utterly without fault. It has to be blemish-free for us to say it is perfect. And nothing ever is. We live in a broken world and we are broken people. And when the New Testament in particular talks about faultlessness and being holy and being righteous and being without defect and without blemish, the authors use a completely different Greek word with a different root altogether from that which is used and translated as perfect. It does not mean the same thing. Being faultless, being righteous is not the same to the authors of the Bible as being perfect, being complete and being whole. The Greek idea of perfection isn't about being flawless, which is good, because there really is only one who can be flawless, and that's God. Jackie Hill Perry writes, God is holy, so then God is also sinless. To say that God is sinless is to say that God is without fault, or to say that God is without fault is to say that God is morally pure. It might be difficult, or at least interesting to imagine, a being so different from us in that regard. But she has a go at it anyway. One in whose mouth you'd be hard-pressed to find deceit and whose eyes are too pure to look on anything wicked. I've tried to envision what it must be like to have a clean heart always, to see money and recognise it as being only paper and provision, not an idol or an identity. To see a woman and just see a woman or to see a woman and remember God. To be reviled and not have to deal with pride, poking at you to say something back, begging you to prove that you're not as weak as you know you are. We won't experience this. 
Our righteousness is a gift. It's not something that we have earned. It isn't something that we can obtain. We can't be flawless. We can't make ourselves flawless because holiness is the domain of God, not man. That is why Paul says that he wants to be found in Christ, not with having a righteousness of his own because that would never measure up. It's a righteousness that comes from God by faith, one that is a gift. And the Bible repeatedly reinforces this idea that it is Jesus who will keep us firm until the end, 1 Corinthians 1.8, and that we are reconciled to God by God himself who prevents us wholly in his sight, blameless and without blemish, Colossians 1.22. And again, all of these words are of a completely different root to this idea of perfection and completeness. It is God who keeps us from stumbling, God who presents us to himself, Jude 1.24. If we make our life's purpose to become more like Christ, if we make that the main thing, the thing which we're meant to be doing day in, day out, if that is our sole or driving factor, force, purpose, we will fail. We can't become like Christ. We can only be transformed by Christ. We can't become righteous. We can only receive righteousness. We can't be holy and blameless. We can only be presented as holy and blameless, called holy and blameless, despite not being holy or blameless. And that is the true, staggering, incredible truth about what it is that Jesus did for us. He didn't come so that we could become exactly like him in all likeness. He came to say it is finished. You are. You are righteous in my eyes. And so what's left for us? We can't be faultless. And moreover, our calling, the call in our life, is not to be faultless. We're called to be in relationship with Jesus. We're not called to be exactly like him, to resemble him more those things happen. The more time you spend with anyone, the more you become like them. It's almost like a byproduct of the relationship, a secondary goal if you're goal-oriented like me. But it is not the main thing. The main thing is that we are called here to abide, to come closer to him in relationship, not closer to him in stature or righteousness or holiness, closer to him in how we relate with him and then how we relate with each other to love each other the way that he's shown us how to love, to be in communion with him, the way that the trinity of God is in unity and the way that he desires to be in relationship with each one of us. We're called to be with Christ, to know him, to walk with him, to search him out, to love him, to love others, to be in relationship with him and all of those other image bearers of his that are walking around. Faultlessness is something we can barely even imagine. It's difficult. We don't really know what it's like. Perfection isn't just unattainable then. It doesn't exist because we can't be faultless. It doesn't exist for us. It's holiness and it's not something that we can achieve. The end game is to be known by God. But I want to acknowledge at this point that we can so often internalise our relationship with God and with Jesus as something where we need to get it right, something to be perfect at. So when I said earlier that every day almost, I think honestly, yes, every day we will fail at the goal of being more like Jesus. But we will never fail at coming closer to Jesus. 
that might have been a little bit hard to hear because maybe some of you are feeling like you have failed in your relationship with Jesus. I know I have really struggled with that because, again, I'm not perfect. It's not, I, I can't perfectly maintain the same level of relationship with Jesus day in, day out. It's not something I've ever been able to achieve and no longer is it something that I am aiming for. See, when I mentioned earlier about how our failing at our goals can lead to feelings of shame, the reason why I find this really useful is because shame is something that gets in the way of us relating with other people and with God. Because when we feel huge senses of shame or failure or disappointment, we often then get really anxious about other people seeing that part of us too. And we put up a lot of defences and we put up a lot of walls to prevent anyone from seeing the parts of us that feel shame. So often, the very thing that we're trying, that we're put here to do, to be in closer relationship with God and with others, is something we're prevented from doing by our very effort at trying to be like God, at trying to correct our behaviours and our habits and at trying to become faultless and holy and blemish-free. These things, because of how frequently we will fail at them, get in the way of us coming closer to the heart of Jesus, the heart of God, because I know I have self-punished myself for failing and my punishment is to not be in close relationship with God because I don't feel worthy of that. And my very act of trying to be perfect sabotages my relationship with Jesus. When I say that you can never fail at coming closer to Jesus, I don't mean that you will always perfectly, with only ever happy emotions, be in relationship with Jesus day in, day out. That's not achievable. What I mean is that even when you are experiencing a negative emotion, even when you are going through an absolute pit of a place, when you're stuck in a desert or it's a wasteland all around you or there's a storm surging and you have nothing but bitterness and anger and contempt towards God, you can still fulfill your purpose of being in relationship with him and coming closer to him by being honest and vulnerable in that place before God. Even when you feel it is negative, you can still be acting in and moving forward in your purpose of knowing him more by revealing who you really are to him. And that's all we can ever do. We can't have a perfect relationship with anyone, let alone God. We can't. We cannot do it the way that we envision or want to or hear about or read about. You might read biographies of people with incredible, incredible faith journeys. I remember reading one as a child. Uh, it was a, one of the girls who lost her lives in one of the mass shootings, high school shootings in the US and her journals were actually hit by a bullet as well, her prayer journals, and they published some of them afterwards. Rachel was her name. And I remember reading through her journals like they were the Bible, basically, and then forming my faith and my ideas of a relationship with Jesus from that. And yeah, it was really useful to see how somebody else talked to God. But then I made that my model and then I never, ever lived up to that. I never wrote in my journal as religiously as she did. 
I never had such happy feelings towards God because what do you know? The journals were only a small snapshot of her life and not the whole total of it. It wasn't a complete picture of her life. It was an imperfect picture of her life. And so I, for years, felt like I had failed at being a good Christian because I hadn't been able to maintain that habit of writing in my journal or being that happy with my relationship with Jesus all the time. But we can be in relationship with Jesus with fault and with blemish, but we can do it perfectly when we see that idea of perfection as something that is just complete and whole. And we are complete and we are made whole when we come to Jesus. We may still be imperfect, but we're complete and we're then functioning as we were intended to in relationship with Jesus. I want to invite the worship team back up now to finish. And I want to invite all of you to ask the Holy Spirit, if you're willing, to reveal any part of your life where you may be working towards a goal that isn't the goal, any part of your life. It's often a blind spot for us, which is why we've been gifted the Holy Spirit, part of why. There's a lot of reasons why it's very useful because blind spots are blind spots. We can't see them. The Holy Spirit can reveal to us where the areas where we're motivated by wanting to be more like him rather than wanting to be near him. Areas where we are striving to be perfect or to become something that we're not even called to be. We're called to be his children. We're called to be in relationship. And we're called to love each other from that place. So I want to invite you, if you're feeling a sense of heaviness around your relationship with God or if you're disappointed by things that have happened uh, on your faith journey, this morning it's an opportunity for a fresh start, not because it's the 1st of January, but actually because tomorrow is Quitter's Day and there's no better day. No. There's no magic day. Every day can be a fresh start with Jesus and should be to reset and remind ourselves what it is that we're here for and why. So just take a moment now to take to him any heaviness you're feeling or any sense of failure or shame and put it at the feet of Jesus and ask him to restore or bring for the first time, whichever it may be, that passion that Paul wrote about of just wanting to know Jesus. May he give each one of us this morning that fervor and that passion just to know, just to know Jesus more. Thank you so much for joining us today. Take some time now to consider what really stood out to you in that message. God has been speaking to you and what is it that he said to you? If you're in the room with someone else, turn and share with them what stood out to you. And I say to them, how can I pray for you? Share with them something that you love about God and something that you're thankful for this week. Or phone someone and ask them those questions. What do you love about God? What are you thankful for this week? And how can I pray for you? Bless you and have a great week.